0: You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Some people focus on making sales calls, reaching decision makers, and selling value. Other people focus on finding data, understanding cause and effect, and conducting experiments. This is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast, where we focus on doing both to create wealth for everyone. I'm excited today to have a guest, an unusual person, this is Charles Chen who has followed a, a career that uh, has had transitions that make him uh, uniquely uh, insightful in our quest here to improve sales processes around the world. He was a mechanical engineer uh, and then he transitioned to being a Six Sigma Green Belt and an engineering project manager at, uh, I think he worked at Ford and then GE and then a bank, and then ultimately became a master black belt at Microsoft and has worked on customer-facing projects uh, in sales and marketing. So, Charles, uh, welcome here.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you.
0: So it would be great. Um, I did a little bit of a... Thumbnail sketch there of your background. I mean, tell us, you know, how you got to where you are and what kind of motivated you along the way.
1: Um,
0: I know that readers would like to hear a little color commentary on, on uh, why you're here.
1: Oh, sure, sure. So uh, my background, you uh, you touched the right um, the, the right the cue points. I started my career a long time ago at Ford Motor Company. As an engineer, uh, graduate from University of Michigan with a Master's in Mechanical Engineering. Uh, after three years, I went to um, uh, Yale Business School. Upon graduation, I started work at GE, and this time was not in engineering, it was in sales enablement. Um, so it was there that I earned my green belt. but we did a project fundamentally enhanced the productivity of that sales organization. Um, after two years there, I went to Washington Mutual Bank as a corporate officer. I ran the Bill Project over there, ran the team as well. Um, saw that bank was about to tilt uh, a year before it finally did and went to Microsoft. Um, at Microsoft, I've been here 11 years. Um, this is my fifth role with the company. But what's most found, um, profound in my career at Microsoft has been when I was in our internal Six Sigma consulting and teaching group. I focused my efforts on sales and marketing. So I personally ran multiple projects at a global scale, scale focused on sales and marketing, improving revenue, either conversion rate or win rate or velocity. And I personally coached 11 folks at Microsoft to earn their green belt or black bill a certification. Half of them were from sales and marketing as well, even the few from uh, our incentive comps organization. So yeah, that's my background. Um, my last role with, yeah, that's my background. Thank you.
0: Um, so so, Six Sigma has a reputation for being very um, doctrinaire, very jargony. <laughs> uh, not everybody from a sales background, uh, in fact, a lot of people from a sales background get turned off as soon as you say six signal yeah. um, but but there there are some uh, very valuable uh, underlying principles that apply uh, in sales and huh. I, I don't want to assume that the audience knows um, uh, you know the the jargon and stuff and so i I thought I would ask you to tell us an example two steps here the first step is tell us an example of a a, some problems that were taking place um, at when you first started doing uh, Six Sigma work. What were the problems that were taking place in the business that couldn't be solved yeah. without taking yeah. this Six Sigma approach? So that, like, why? What were they struggling with? Why couldn't they fix it on their own? What did this DMAIC right, define, measure, analyze, yeah. this Six Sigma? Why was that
1: needed? Yeah, and, and totally. What happened to that? Yeah, totally. Let me uh let me use a uh, an example from my very first project, even at uh GE. Uh this division that GE is, is uh GE Equipment Services. Uh GE Equipment Services, they own a lot of a lot of assets. And this division in particular owns billions of dollars of tractor and trailers. So, Michael, if you're going down the highway, you see a forty-eight foot or fifty-three foot tractor mm-hmm. going down shipping something. That tractor in the back. A huge percentage of those in North America are are owned by General Electric. Hmm. Pretty profound, right? They build aircraft engines, but they also (laughs) own assets like that. One thing very, very fundamental about that sort of asset, I think everybody can appreciate is how do you make money on that asset? You make that money, you own the product itself, you own it. The moment it sits on your lot, it's depreciating. It's just like an airplane, a a commercial airplane. The moment it sits on the tarmac, you're losing money. You've got to get that thing flying all the time. Mm -hmm. Same thing with these tractors and trailers. So what typically happened um, when I joined that part of GE is they have hundreds of thousands of these tractors and trailers. Spontaneously, suddenly, a whole fleet of them shows up at the GE site. Then the salespeople are running around with their heads mad trying to get them out the door again. Some of them sit there for months. Every month is losing money. So that was a fundamental issue. It's like barely making it and everything was reactive. And like, how do, we, how do we know that these things are coming back and make sure they don't come back? Or if they come back, it's barely a touch point And then boom, they're back out with the same customer or with a different customer. Or the best part is they don't even come back in the first place. So that was the fundamental problem they're trying to solve. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, so the project how I got involved. Yeah. Go but ahead. Why couldn't they ahead. solve it? I mean, I'm sure there was lots of people, you know, who could see the problem. Why did yeah. you have to do Six Sigma to solve
1: it? Yeah, I think there's a combination of that. This division of GE um, was fairly recently acquired, so a lot of the folks in the senior leadership chain. Um, came from GE. So they, they have a Six Sigma background. In fact, most of them were black folks or mass black folks. At the same time, you still have the traditional folks on the site who got acquired with the company. So there's a culture change in the first place. How do you mm-hmm. get everybody to recognize that we got to solve this problem together and look at it from a different way? As this opposed is, to um, everybody, you stay in your own lane. I'm doing a good job. Leave me alone. Kind that's of right. That's right. As long as I'm making money, as long as I am a seller I make money I meet my quota I'm good yeah um, but the cost of the company which this eludes to is very real and very material and to really bring up the margins you've got to you've got to worry about both and there has always been complaints from the sales team that when they want to get trailers out they don't have enough trailers or they're being bombarded by requests from managers to hey I got to I got you to find a way to find homes for 4000 mo- new trailers so mm. that added pressure and friction is very real for the company.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Yeah. So what? Did, what? Did, that's the
0: problem, and it's pressure, and it's not being solved, and people aren't cooperating. What does Six Sigma bring?
1: Yeah. So I was. Um, so Six Sigma I actually approaches in the very traditional Demaic approach. But let's take a step back and and not not go into t- the extreme technical details of that fundamentally, as a salesperson as a senior manager, you want to you have you want to know, have a pulse on all your assets, all these expensive assets you want to know uh, sometime before they have a tendency to come back. you already know about that you want early warnings, early signals that uh, any one of these traders could be coming back to the company, so what I did was I work with the the executive management chain and the sales leadership and say, what is the most sensible way that we can put together a process that gives us early warnings, at least six months ahead when you know if a trailer is coming back. If that trailer is coming back six months before, we need to have a process to reallocate it to another customer who need it, or you got to work with the same customer to do another multi-year lease, so mm-hmm. the, so, the, so the trailer doesn't come back in the first place. So the project was actually focused on 100% visibility on trailer status six months before expiration. That mm-hmm. was the project focus. Once we have six months, then the leadership can action on that. Yeah, so Michael, so what we did was, how do you get 100% visibility to, uh, uh, trailer status. We didn't have a, we didn't have a system process to set up. So in the interim, I actually set up our the fourth, the fourth, um, how should I say that? A, um, a, uh, a former version of early, early point urgent to SharePoint. And then we had to go in and provide status. Not everything, Michael, I, you and I don't need to worry about one or two trailers coming back Eighty twenty rule, right? Mm-hmm. Which, Biggest fleets of trailers are potentially running out of lease, exact, running out of lease exactly where they should be at, mm-hmm. um, six months before expiration date. And that's what the project focused on. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So we went from no baseline to we got to about 95%. We knew 95% of the trailers five, six months before coming home what the disposition status is. Are they going to be extended? Are they going to come home? And the ones that are going to be coming home, those are the ones that engin- the uh, executive leadership and the sales leaders immediately action on. The bottom line is they shouldn't come home. And that was what my project was focused on and made a fundamental um, um, change to the way the company operated. It's about early warning. It's knowing how things operated early so we can action on it. It's knowing it's going from reactive to proactive. And uh, yeah, that was my very first Greenbill
0: project. Excellent. Okay. And so that I think that's a really good
1: example.
0: Um, so so some observations and then you you because you're the master black belt, I'm not. I'm just a black belt. Um, but but uh, let me hit through these. I, I think of these DMAIC or PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act, right? These methods as um, they're like the bumper rails on the bowling alley, right? They, <laughs> in your mind, your thinking is the bowling ball. You're <laughs> to keep it on track to solving right. the problem, right? And so you define the problem. And you realize that people in different parts of the organization are seeing it differently. But you have to have a common vision of what's evidence. The, yeah. And then you get to the measure, which is like, what are we observing and how do we know and how much is going yep. on of this problem? Right? Yep. And then you analyze. Once you have that data coming from measure, now you're analyzing, well, 80-20, <laughs> which are the biggest, you know, the few things we could change that would have the biggest impact. And that gives you a clue as to what changes might be required. Yes. That's your improve phase. And then you pointed out they had to have a fundamental change to the way the business operates, to the system. Yep. That's the control phase, right? To yep. make sure that those changes stay in place. I had a fellow tell me one time, this is just, a, I'm fanatically committed to common sense, right? And that,
1: that's what he called demaic that's uh-huh. what he
0: called Six Sigma. And that's really what it is. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Oh, very fair. It's, it's doing what's sensible for the business, right? Um, every project that uh, myself and my uh, builds or my team have done in the past, I have never ever advocated the meg for the sake of the meg. It's also, it's always about what is fundamentally important for the customer or my stakeholders and then use the most sensible approach or tool that, and so doing the way that everybody embrace and everybody move forward together, that so is really critical
0: yeah in in that case, uh, the difference is the the problem solving has to take place not just between a single person 's ears but yeah. in a group of people working as a team on the same system right absolutely right so now let 's transition to the second part of the uh, topic or the the way of thinking about this, which would be applying this. These bumper rails to mm-hmm. our thinking and applying it to something that's actually a sales process in an organization yeah. where where it's not just um, availability of equipment or uptime or quality yep. problem or or whatever. It is actually, you know, getting people we don't even know uh, to talk to us and ultimately to buy from us, right?
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: the question is for you is I'd like you to tell me an example. Of a of a problem that the sales organization was having, yep. and yeah, and they tried really hard, and they were they couldn't solve it. And then, what did this Six Sigma thinking approach, this, this operational excellence sort of rational uh, problem solving approach, what did it bring? And then, what result was it able to create?
1: Yeah, great question, great question, Michael. So. Um, um, allow me to use an example I did uh, as a project I, did, I ran for Microsoft. Uh, this project took place about four years ago. It was called Objection Handling. I believe your audience on the call, uh, your audience will listen to this podcast who have sales background. Everybody knows what lead conversion rate is. Marketing, spend a lot of money. Um, do field marketing, do phone marketing, do trial, trial account marketing. And what they do, they fundamentally generate a lead. Um, They send that to the sales team. What you want to do is convert as many of those leads to opportunities. And once it becomes an opportunity, you want that to go as fast as possible with the biggest revenue that resulted from those opportunities as as possible. So this project was focused on lead conversion rate. So about four years ago, I got involved with this project focused on the U.S. Microsoft telesales team. It was office 365. It was about office 365 trial leads conversion rate. Mm-hmm. So the sales leaders were very gracious to to invite me in. They said, Charles, we got the Im- improved lead conversion rate. So I say, okay, let's take a step back, guys. What fundamentally impacts lead conversion rate? So the sales leaders were in the room and we whiteboarded. We did a little bit of exercise, which is meaning everybody silently come up with ideas and we vote. So everybody agreed there's two most fundamental things that changes lead conversion rate at the point of contact with a customer. Number one is lead quality. Mm-hmm. If the quality is really good, if the quality is awesome, Michael, sales just need to do very, very, very little. Yeah. But most of the time, <laughs> we don't always get that, right? right so right. yeah, so the other point they believe, that team believe is about objection handling at the point of sale. When customer has an objection, it can be I'm not willing to, I can't talk right now, I don't have a need, I don't have the money, I'm not interested, I don't trust Microsoft. All these combinations are called objection handling. And they said, how do we overcome objections better? That's that. What that's what they task all of us to do as a team. So, how do we leverage? This process, Six Sigma discipline approach to handle this. First and foremost, how do we define objections, customer objections? So that's the first thing we did. We spent quite—I want to say a lot of time. I would say about one month defining the definition of objections hmm. and ensuring that when we everybody looks at it, they look at it the same way. If you're not even if you're not aligned on the fundamental problem, the detailed definition, of the problem, you might be doing frivolous. Actions that may not help it it is about right. setting the basis, right? That's the first step. Right. And the next step is data collection and objection handling. Being co- and especially with a customer uh, conversation, being is pretty subjective. So we didn't have automated uh, AI systems to detect it. So we actually, as a myself and a few managers, would we'll just jump on salespeople's calls and listen to the conversation and collect data.
0: Mm, Just take
1: notes. Just take notes. So, Michael, this is the baseline. What we found out, we listened to probably 500 calls. Out of 500 calls, we have 67 distinct objections. 67. Out of those 67 distinct objections, what we found out was only 33% of the objections were overcome. One Mm -hmm. out of three objections at the point of interaction with the customer were overcome. The unrest, rest of 67%. That lead, that lead close. So there's your baseline. That was my baseline. That was my baseline.
0: Yeah. So that way, when yeah. you make a change, you'll be able to tell if you create an improvement or not. Yeah. Uh, let me interject here for a moment. That is one of the biggest challenges that I see and experienced. I, I spent, uh, more than seven years, uh, in a sales training organization. Yeah. And it's a good sales training organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, um, and it's because the clients aren't asking for it, but very few people in that industry understand measurement. Uh And so they bring this great process. And if you just do these behaviors, then you're going to get better results. But that process comes with a cost. It takes more time. It know, people have to work harder. It doesn't always apply in every situation. And and yet so they're looking for a few of the salespeople to actually implement those behaviors and it works and it's great success and the sales, you know, they well, you need field coaching. But there ends up being no data telling you yeah. right what what behaviors, what um were the causes of an increase in conversion or not. And and for the sales organization, you can only work harder. For so long, right? You have yeah. people burn out. We're tired working 60 hours a week for five years. We is just, yeah. just another thing we have to do. So they need a way to be tangible to see that things are getting better, and that requires a measurement system. Yeah. And a measurement and, and, system that isn't bullshit that the sales yeah. have to respect, right? So yeah. that's a huge thing that I think that this operational excellence methodology brings. So, I mean, tell me more yeah
1: so the just to follow up on what you just said right like knowing fundamentally as an advisor to them as a sales advisor to them i needed to i needed to advise them on how to handle this because I knew this was gonna take time um especially on data that's that subjective that's only you can capture through listening. you need to put a little bit of boundaries around this this team and Get the sponsor and the champion to give you the room to do that. And um, I, I spent quite a bit of time with the sponsor and with the champion to say, to do this right, we need ring-fenced team and ring-fenced time to do this properly. Without that, this data would be very subjective. What and, was the word
0: you use? Ring-sense? fence. is it?
1: Yeah, uh, ring-fence. You want to ring-fence a little bit of space to be uh, space and time to do the projects the right way. Okay, when so you know this much. I'm not, I'm not. I'm yeah. not
0: familiar with this word. Spell it for me. I'm missing so. Yeah. So ring. You mean like like you're in the ring with them? Is that what you're thinking?
1: I'm in the. Yeah, I'm in the ring with them and let that. Yeah, and let that team be our beta, our 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 alpha or beta testing team, right? Yeah. So they still have to meet their targets but they're really going leaning and do this project with me. So yeah, yeah, I was able to buy time with that. And um, yeah, so what happened up from that point on is this. Um, we collected um, we collected these data points, but these are just the outcome, that's a baseline. This was a very, very um, in-depth project is that every time we collect in the data on the objection, there was other factors that we saw would impact objection handling. Um, and then we want to do analysis, see correlations, right? And so, we also collected data on um, customer mood and tone, time of the week, time of the day, agent tenure. There is a there is a thought that the more mm. tenure the agent, the seller, the more the, their their ability to overcome objection was higher. Mm-hmm. There was also also discussion on customer size, and so for every time we collected an objection. Uh, objection, handling, yes or no outcome, we also collected about 10 data points that goes with that so we can do analysis. Hmm. Ultimately, then net-, net is this. We ran the analysis and all this spiel. We, what we found out was nine out of those 10 data points didn't even matter. Customer, seller's tenure didn't matter. Time of the day didn't matter. Uh, time of the day didn't matter. What mattered, mattered, mattered the most. Is at the point of contact? Did you fundamentally focus on customer needs? Is a black and white yes or no discrete answer? The managers had to listen to your two specific questions to assess whether the eight, the sellers really understand needs. Number one, did they spend time fundamentally understanding the customer's model and how Microsoft products helping them? And number two, did they spend time asking their current product suites and the gaps? how the how potential other products could or could not help them. The focus is not about I'm selling to you. The focus is about you tell me your problems and let me come up with options to help you. Hmm. I tell you, the moment that happened, all the other objections just didn't happen. When that didn't happen, objections are popping up like daisies. You know what I mean? It's like customers are <laughs> a little irritated. They feel like you're pushing to me. Right. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, this is too expensive. Hey, I actually don't trust you right now. I heard yeah. that quite a bit. But the fundamentally, if I just focus on these complete outside-in focus, and which which is what Six Sigma is about anyway, the other objection just dissolve. And what we also ran it into the model, what we found out was every time a seller laser focus on customer needs, the probability overcome the objections has an odd ratio of 370 to one. It's kind of like rolling the dice, what is your chance of rolling on the six It's one out of every six, right? Yeah. When you're rolling a dice, but based on the odds ratio ran by this very enhanced statistical model, if you do that, if we just laser focus on customer needs, that odds ratio is 370 to one. Wow, very intense. And so what we did ultimately We fundamentally changed the way we didn't even change lead quality, but just based on instilling that new approach with this sales team, um, their lead conversion rate went from about 7.5 to 13.8%. Almost double. Almost double. And we also toned it down too. We didn't say, okay, that entire difference is ours because. Everybody on this call who listened to you know that other factors impact sales. So we took that down 30%. So that difference, we multiply by 0.7. And that's what the project gave back to the team. Yeah. So that is an example of how leveraging Six Sigma, and like your friend said, is about common sense. Laser focus on the common sense. Prove it. Prove it with data and get everybody to go
0: with you. Right. Right.
1: So, yeah. right.
0: It's amazing how all those other theories that people would heartfelt belief, you know, it's of course the longer you're here, the more experience you have. Of course, the more salesy your personality is, the better you're going to do. And then you put data onto the situation and all that stuff melts away. Uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's about trust. It's it about is. the trust. Yeah. It's and, about trust.
1: And
0: it's about trust. M- meaning the data helps create a trusting environment. Is that what you mean?
1: No, it's about when you laser um lay, uh, for for this specific sales oh man customer for trust this, yeah it's about the customer trust and the uh, the customer the first thing you got to do on the call is earn that trust and they and the earning that trust you can't demand it you do it through action you do it through. Really being there for the customer, I'm here, and I'm so gracious I'm so grateful that you you gave me time. I want to focus on you, and i want my focus is about fixing your problems and um yeah, most of the time that conversation just goes very 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 well yeah. and
0: so the traditional focus of management and 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 its makes sense it's a it's a it's a You can understand where executives are coming from. We're spending a lot of money to have salespeople there. We want to have the best salespeople. We want to have the best return for our investment in the sales organization. And so we expect them to produce. And of course, we're going to measure the performance of our salespeople by how much they produce. And so they start measuring that one thing, but they're not measuring the causes of that production. Right yeah. They're not measuring this is the, is a salesperson creating trust you, and notice your prob your project started out around a problem defined around handling objections. you had a yep. low conversion rate of the sales process, and only thirteen and a half percent i think of the of the objections were actually answered yep. and what you ended up realizing was that we had to solve the trust problem we had to get salespeople to focus on the customer's issues and the objections went away, you learned the cause and effect system there. And I think that's something that every salesperson would know kind of by instinct. Of course, that's the case. Yeah. But they couldn't articulate it in a way that and, – and then the salespeople are only stuck with their own sphere of influence. They can control their own behaviors. They can't control their manager's behaviors. They can't control the marketing department, right? Yeah. So this gives them, this gives them sort of an operating system for identifying the causes and effects so that we can make sales easier for everybody and yeah. be able to shine a light on those individuals who are really doing a good job and provide guidance and support for the people who are struggling. Uh, yeah. It's just a radical difference in the way the organization can be managed and the productivity that can be achieved from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Michael, yeah, a lot of, when I think about it, like a a sales team, right? The Six Sigma, like the approach that you and I just talked about, you and I may not impact the exceptional sellers. Those folks are creating magic because Mm -hmm. there's something unique about them. Um, This program that I talked about, Lifted on average the entire organization up, but the exceptional ones, um, they may or may not benefit from this. It's probably just a reminder for them. You know what I mean? It yeah. is the average ones, or the newer ones, or the ones who don't quite get it yet. They uh, they approach sales a bit robotically, focus on features, focus on their own company. Right. This Six Sigma, this this kind of approach lifts on average, the entire organization up. So we avoid what you will call elephant fun. Uh, Have you heard the term elephant hunting in sales? Looking for the
0: biggest, baddest, largest account that we can, yeah, the big deals, the whales.
1: Yeah, you look for, if you lead a team of eight people, you have two or three people that are exceptional killing it. And you leave those two alone, the rest of the five, what happens if they're not make, making numbers? And mm-hmm. then the sales manager's tendency will be naturally to focus on the elephant deals. The huge sure deals. Will, if, making yeah, the numbers, if, right? Like, right. Exactly. Trying to make a number. 80-20 a rule, right? Exactly. But this discipline, this example that you and I talked about is about lifting everybody up in a very systematic way and uh, in, a very stand, in a very consistent way, right? So,
0: yeah. and And it's not done. As I recall, there was another no. chapter to the story that remains perhaps uh, to be done because oh. there was a deal. You are talking about deal quality. Can you yeah. say something about that Absolutely. issue?
1: Absolutely. So, um, um, the way we disposition leads, so let's just say 100 leads come in, a percentage becomes opportunities, and which is that 13 point something percent I just shared with you earlier. The rest of the what happened to them? What we did is look through those data intensely and go, okay, which ones are true that this is a legitimate, we're not going to proceed, but which ones are ones that shouldn't even come to our sellers in the first place? If a lead has no chance ever, ever, even 1% chance of becoming an opportunity, why are we spending our sellers' time on that? Because that's very expensive resources. You can mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I work with the sales leaders of that group to really dig in, what we found out is that almost 50% of the disqualified leads. So out of that 86.5%, I just mentioned, half of that were leads that came from what you would call a Microsoft partner. So what is a Microsoft partner? Microsoft sells a lot of our product through our partners. Like um, you have. A, partners out there who sell our products directly to the customer because the customer may need additional integration help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so as simple as that. So 40, half of the disqualified leads were actually Microsoft partners. And I listened to numerous of these calls. We call and say, hey, I noticed you are you have one of our uh, products as a trial. How is that working for you? Can you tell me where your customer want to go? Oh, I'm a oh well, this is who I am. And I'm just trying to... Play with this tool to serve another customer. Oh, they're a Microsoft partner. Those they can play with our products as much as they want. They are totally entitled to it. But those are not the ones that we need to sell to because they're selling our products. Right. So yeah. So Salesforce has to call them up anyway because they come in yeah. as a lead. Yeah, because Salesforce are also um, how should I say it? They are also mandated. To make sure you cannot have leads sitting more than two or three weeks in your inbox because it, as every day, as, as days go, that leads age and the more they age, the more the, the customer attention is less, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. So I work upstream with the Microsoft product group and directly went to their marketing group and we realized what the way we sign up for leads is we let everybody sign in and we ask three or four fundamental questions about them. We just want their contact info, address, and a few other things. And that's it. After that, they're totally entitled to, um, download a one month lead, lead trial account. Um, yeah. So our next job, my, our next focus with, with them was about how do we get rid of partner leads? Don't just, don't create them as a lead and forward down to our sellers. Yeah, so that was the next phase of the project. And I gotta be very transparent with you, Michael, that happened about four years ago. And unfortunately, I was unsuccessful yeah. in, in that change.
0: Well, and looking yeah. at it from the as I recall looking at it from the marketer's point of view, look, we don't wanna add friction and ask a whole nother question on the page. We have to make this be very, very simple for them. So no, we're not gonna change it. Unwittingly yeah. sub-optimizing as they say, the whole system
1: yeah, 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 and, o- and also, like um, to make that kind of fundamental change, it really required the most, 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 most up chain of the level and marketing executive leadership and sales leadership to have an agreement, and, which, um, yes, which, which, which yeah. leads to another
0: theme that I keep hitting on all the time, that senior executives are the ones with the most to gain by understanding what these little simple bumper guides on our thinking, right? What's the objective to get the ball down the bowling alley, to hit the pins, and how do we stay on track? you got to have understanding variations, systems thinking, right, uh, value to the customer, a cause and effect, and do experiments. And unfortunately, that is not the natural
1: Operating system of most corporations, especially large ones. Yeah, I think um, a big part of it, I can understand the predicament they're in. Most cor- most public traded corporations, and I run into this all the t- I ran into this all the time internally. Is that sales leadership are measured on a monthly and quarterly. Every <clears> month, <throat> did you make your monthly budget or quota? Right. Every quarterly, did you meet it? That kind of cycle time is pretty stressful. I've been in there. I've been in there with them. I get yep. it. And uh, so as a, as a result, when running this sort of projects, which can take a little bit longer than a monthly cycle time, is not. Uh, it takes a lot of convincing. At the same time, if your vision is to really have a lot lasting long term impact on the company, the investment is worth it. Yeah. Um, and that's why people like me need to approach them in a sensible way, right? Um, you can't pound or your chest and, dema- and demand the maic. That just it doesn't work that way. you got to give the executives what they need right now and then let them see the value of this when done right. Um, exactly. Just like what I said, it's focusing on the need. But even when you have the right medicine, you've got to feed it over and help in the way that the patient or your cl- your most critical client is ready for it. and. Um, Wow. A lot of people lose sight of that, and um, and they run into a uh, immovable object, and uh, and it can give this discipline an undeserved name. So thanks to individuals like yourself,
0: we now are getting more stories of real corporations and real people solving real problems using real scientific approaches, rather than hutzpah and working harder and you know, uh, the traditional stuff that uh, many sales organizations fall back on. Um, and and so I, I really appreciate the time and your willingness to participate here, Charles. This has been great. Um, if someone wants to learn more about you or get a hold of you, how would they do it?
1: Yeah, the best way is uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn profile is very straightforward. Charles T. Chen, C-H-E-N. Or, yeah, just go T, there. And my, Charles T is in Tom? As in Tom, yeah. Okay, and then, Charles, uh, T, yeah, T. my contact info is all in there. And, uh, and like I mentioned- And you're at Microsoft, currently. right? Yeah, I'm at Microsoft currently. I never say no to a good conversation. That sounds wonderful. I really
0: appreciate your time here. I know a lot of people are going to be commenting on this interview because we were able to get enough down into the weeds to make it real, but we were able to look at the overall big picture. So well done. Thank you very much. And um, Thank you, sir. We'll be talking again in the future, I'm sure. Take care.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Michael.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.